You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, listeners, before we begin today, just a quick shout out. Uh, Tonight we are having a discussion on community land trusts. For me, it's the hope of the side for affordable housing. We're having uh, this discussion at our offices at uh, Level 164 Harcourt Street, 6 p.m. tonight till probably 8 p.m. Drop in for wine, pizza and uh, all sorts of economic warfare discussions. But uh, we'll be tying that to the Community Land Trust flag tonight as we look at what's happening around the world, what's happening in Australia. We'll have Gary Flomenhoft, who was on the show a few weeks ago. Great to see that uh, show hit a lot of buttons for people out there. Thanks for the feedback on that one. Gary will be uh, Skyping in to discuss uh, what's happening around the world. Love to see you. Check the details at prosper.org.au. Listeners, listeners, listeners. Welcome, my friends, to another edition of The Renegade Economist, the show where we try and reveal powers of monopoly, whether they be landlords, bankers or natural monopolists, they're all scraping away at the foundations of democracy. And really, when you think about what's going on in the news here in Australia and around the world at the moment, this is the era of white-collar crime, isn't it? It just continues on and on and on. This banking royal commission that's underway at present is peeking under the covers of a sordid and saucy world amongst those who make the mega, mega dollars. So, uh, yeah, we talk about a system that could help balance that out without being totally socialist. How can we have a mix of both capitalism and socialism? It's essentially a synthesis of that by ensuring that these monopoly rents go towards the funding of government, rather than the funding of lavish lifestyles. And and with Australia's unique ability to actually value our land and natural resources, to value our monopolies, we can show, we can quantify how much these rents add up to and whether we could actually afford to do what is highly controversial in some 3CR circles, remove income taxes, and remove company taxes. Can we even get rid of the GST? Well, I'm here to tell you there is more than enough money to do that if we wanted. And the benefits of uh, charging monopolists a, uh, well, I've just released uh, the latest edition of Progress magazine and the front cover is Economic Concentration, Rent-Seeking Patents and Political Collusion. Have we reached peak big business? But on the back, I was happy to see Cameron Murray tweeting uh, the back cover, which has the heading, The Road Monopolis, Transurban. Traffic volumes up 1.4%. Net profits up 280%. What's the answer? A tollmaster's licence fee. And uh, looking through yesterday's Victorian budget papers, I saw that... uh, Transurban is gifted each year some $31 million worth of land for their tollways and for their head office. 
Wouldn't that be nice if we all got given the land for our business to operate on and then we had a right to charge a toll on that land that uh, is baked in at a 4% increase each year. A lovely, lovely business model that Transurban has worked up there. And of course, uh, they're exporting that model all around the world. And I pull my hair out thinking, uh, look, what we need is a Tollmaster's license fee based on the value of their lands. That was actually a tax expenditure of $31 million. They, their lands would probably be worth, uh, God, five or $600 million at least. So uh, you'd have the tax based on the value of their land holdings and they wouldn't be able to avoid those charges. They wouldn't be able to uh, uh, work their tax accounting magic so that they reduce their uh, taxable fees. Transurban, one of those many companies that are masterful at ensuring they get huge public subsidies while paying nothing back to the taxpayer. Well, uh, today, like many days in the Prosper office, uh, you never quite know what's going to happen. And this morning I spent 70 minutes on the phone with a uh, investigative reporter. Lovely to have people like that uh, trying to tie together some of the big picture concerns uh, because it just becomes so obvious as you uh, get your head around this story that that's where the white collar crime is aimed at. They want these windfall gains. They want the golden pen tick. They will bribe their way. They will uh, network their way any which way is possible to uh, receive that golden pen tick and receive the, have dumped in their laps that $100 million uplift for uh, a major piece of land getting rezoned from agricultural to residential. But uh, yeah, just to give you an insight on, on some of the things that have been happening this week, we had a former Treasury economist come in and it's looking like he's going to write us a key new research paper. Last week, we released the Trickle Up Economics Report. You heard uh, Polly... Cleveland on the show discussing uh, that concept from her perspective. I thought it was very interesting to hear how even in non-monetary communities such as our Aboriginal friends uh, from hundreds, thousands of years ago, wherever the greatest bounty was on the planet, that's where that bounty would need to be defended or some system of sharing that bounty was established. That's essentially what we're still doing today. Wherever the most valuable pieces of property are, strong property rights backed up by the legal system and the state occur, we're saying that uh, whilst you can put that fence up, you have to repay us for that right. And unfortunately, at the moment, uh, we are repaying that right largely to banks with these uh, incredible mortgages where 65 to 70% of our mortgage is for the land component. That's something that supposedly all of humanity were gifted on this planet, but uh, banks somehow have this right to uh, charge interest on it. It must change because if we channel that payment away from the banks and towards government, we could all enjoy a tax cut alongside much lower mortgage debt. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, 20 
tax officials from the Jiangsu province of China come and visit and listen to uh, our expertise on what is one of the most exciting things uh, happening for us around the world, and that is the potential for a land tax or an annual property tax to be implemented in China, where after decades of suppression, these animal instincts of uh, real estate uh, rentier type behavior, where those uh, on the inside who snaffled up the natural monopoly, snaffled up uh, the best land, were able to make huge fortunes. The government is recognizing that's a danger to the financial stability of the nation, a danger to the political structure as well. So they're looking to uh, hold that in check with a annual property tax. Now we're hoping that's a land tax. A property tax is not such a good thing because that includes a tax on the building and we want to encourage people to build, particularly build upwards. If you put solar panels on your roof, you shouldn't be penalised for that. If you work, you shouldn't be penalised for that. But if you hold some of nature's bounty or a government mandated licence and uh, that goes up in value, that's an unearned income, should be shared back with the community. So it was uh, quite rewarding to have those uh, 20 tax officials here and one of the key questions they asked that day was, does the Victorian government increase the land tax to push land prices down? And uh, smiles broke out from our side of the table as we recognise these guys are actually serious. They know what we're talking about because that's what a land tax does. It acts as a counterweight to land prices. So, uh, yeah, we're going to have to sit on the sidelines and see what happens there, but... Uh, our friend Michael Hudson is off to give a lecture uh, this week in China. I think it's at uh, Peking University where he's a professor there. And, uh, yeah, with all this banking royal commission stuff going on, it's just been incredible seeing the stuff coming out day by day in the press. Robo-signing uh, with the NAB Bank, uh, the AMP, the General Counsel Salter, intervening with a supposedly arm's length investigation into AMP and uh, ordering some 25 redrafts of the uh, document, basically uh, whitewashing any sort of uh, objective analysis of the problems going on at AMP. That all being revealed, the CEO standing down, the, the chair, chairwoman standing down as well, certainly necessary. And uh, a lot of the problems we're seeing with the banking industry, I mean, it was incredible, that interview we did a few weeks ago with uh, Denise Braley, where she revealed that it's not going to come out in this very short uh, banking commission. But what banks are doing are using the opposite to the American system, where they were lending to no income, no jobs. Well, they're lending to asset rich income poor types and sending their mortgage brokers out at arm length distance from them so that they can always say look it wasn't us this was a rogue sort of campaign going on and and using all of these sneaky tricks to uh, to get pensioners to take out investor only loans that similar to the American situation after five years they explode in terms of the repayments required 
who knows how many solid citizens have fallen foul of that. But uh, when uh, those investor-only loans are transferred over or along those five years, those mortgage brokers receive a trailing commission. And what I'm hoping will come out of this banking commission is that uh, these percentage charges that uh, banksters or superannuation companies are allowed to uh, charge get written off and uh, it becomes a flat fee type payment. That's what I'm dreaming, but let's see what happens because uh, Ian Veranda in the, on the ABC uh, sort of uh, put on the agenda what's coming up when the superannuation industry starts to face the heated questions of uh, uh, QC Rachel Orr. And uh, Veranda writes, in 2016 alone, total fees amounted to $31 billion in the superannuation industry, up from just $20 billion three years ago. Of that, about 26% or $8 billion was for administration. $7.8 billion went to investment managers and a whopping $8.4 billion for insurance sold through superannuation funds. As for the rest, financial advisors took $5.9 billion while $600 million went towards asset consultants. That's the equivalent of 230 Sydney opera houses or 531 Airbus A380s or 55 of the new submarines the government's planning to build in Adelaide. So uh, this percentage charge grows as our contributions uh, add millions and millions of dollars a day to uh, these company, these superannuation companies. And I remember meeting one a few years ago and he said, yep, but every day about $4 million comes into our account. This is an absolute gravy train superannuation. These commissions, uh, basically, the returns from the superannuation industry are, are something like 90% correlated to the return in the share market. So they delivered all this money, they throw it in with their mates in the share market, perhaps investing in companies where they are really uh, strategizing to get a board position so they can guarantee a uh, hundred dollars to $200,000 a year for being on a board. And all this money from workers is thrown at the share market, pushing up the value of these shares. CEOs with their share bonus options clean up on that. And each and every day, the money keeps rolling in. Is it really managing our, our money effectively so that we can live a good life in retirement? Some say that these commissions are coming down uh, probably five years ago. There was about 5% commissions in the superannuation industry. Uh, now uh, it's down to around about 1%, but still that's uh, twice as expensive as it should be. If it was just a flat fee each year, perhaps it would uh, recognise the actual effort required in managing these funds where a pretty well point and click they manage one, they manage them all. So, uh, yeah, there, there's not that much day-to-day -day activity required once you've, you've selected what style of superannuation uh, investment strategy you want. There's probably a whole pile of automated software sitting behind it, and that is what uh, uh, really drives things. It's not actually uh, people spending heaps of hours on this.
You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. This week on a monologue tearing up about this uh, white-collar crime uh, seeping into our lives, uh, left, right and centre. And I'm going to put in the show notes uh, that The Guardian had a fantastic uh, Banking Royal Commission quiz. What incredibly dubious practices were revealed this week? There's a, uh, a celebrity financial planner named Sam Henderson who was in the witness box of the Royal Commission. And uh, he's famous for having his own TV show on Sky News, winning the Association of Financial Advisors Practice of the Year 2016, providing financial advice in the AFR, Sydney Morning Herald, Age, Money Magazine and Channel 10's a project. These are the types of people who get on the news, not little NGOs like ours. So uh, you're always hearing a biased uh, type stories, uh, talking up the market, talking how property is only ever going to go upwards, uh, what a great time it is to buy, all of these uh, things. And uh, the commission revealed that uh, he'd lied about having a Masters of Commerce. The Royal Commission heard evidence from Donna McKenna, an angry customer of Henderson's, where Henderson advised McKenna to roll her public sector superannuation funds into a self-managed super fund with Henderson's firm. How much would have she lost if she pulled her money out of her public sector fund? So the quiz goes, 100,000, which I ticked, 250,000, 500,000 or 1 million. I thought it couldn't be any more than $100,000, but no, the withdrawal charge would have cost her $500,000. What sort of gravy train is this superannuation industry? It's incredible. And you just go through this list and your jaw drops as you see what's going on. I really must try and get down there the next time uh, uh, the commission is on. Back to Michael Hudson. And uh, I put up a a great piece from him uh, this week, uh, Jesus the economic activist. And he's got a lot of stories coming out at the moment as his new book is uh, almost at the printers called And Forgive Them Their Debts. There's an incredible section to this interview where he talks about the Ten Commandments. And he says, They were formulated in in a society where debt was the main disruptive economic feature. For instance, the commandment, Thou shall not covet my neighbor's wife. At that time, creditors would make loans to debtors who would have to put up collateral. The most typical collateral they would have put up would be their household slave girl or otherwise their daughter or wife. The woman would have to go... God, I should put a warning out this, 3CR. This might be triggering what I'm talking about. The woman would have to go live in the house of the creditor and usually had to have sex with them. That's how employer-employee relations were back from the Bronze Age through the Iron Age. Already in 2350 BC, the laws of Eurekagina in Sumer had a special sanction saying that a wife can't have two husbands. The idea against coveting someone's wife meant that you can't take another person's wife as a debt servant to have sex with. He goes on, The commandment, Thou shall not steal, referred to to making a loan and foreclosing on land or seizing property and not returning it. That was looked socially as a form of theft. Gee, wouldn't we love that? Sounds rather ethical. The commandment, thou shall not take the Lord's name in vain, referred to taking an oath. Creditors were were notorious for lying. The books of Plutarch and other authors 
are rife with examples of creditors lying. In Babylonia, everything had to be written down. In Egypt, the same thing. Every creditor claim had to be written down and witnessed. The idea was to enforce behavior in keeping with the Ten Commandments and the laws of Leviticus, which said that every 50 years there has to be a clean slate, a duror, a jubilee year. The Hebrew word for the jubilee year was cognate, to the word for the Babylonian clean slate, and duraram. These debt cancellations also freed bond servants and returned land to debtors who had to forfeit it. You could go right down through the Ten Commandments and see that their aim was to prevent the corrosive effects of debt tearing society apart. Wow, so a reminder, Michael Hudson uh, is uh, an expert on the ancient Near East. He worked with uh, a group at Harvard. He set up, they read cuneiform tablets from, uh, uh, you know, three, 4,000 years ago and uh, are pulling out the economic teachings from back in that time. It's never been done before. This has only happened in the last 20 years. So it's remarkable that uh, uh, the wisdom of the ages gets passed down to you here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. So, okay, in the last few minutes, let's talk about the Victorian state budget. So really the overview from my perspective was that uh, there were record infrastructure spending announcements alongside peak population growth seemed set to lock out thousands more from housing as the policy fraud continues above and beyond. And uh, whilst uh, many will talk about the, uh, the good nature of finally this uh, inner Melbourne you know, greeny type funding of inner city suburbs has been corrected and they're now spending big on uh, the burbs on the regional areas. Still, uh, when it comes to the economic policy, it's all about these uh, natural monopolies being sold off. Thankfully, no new privatisation announcements have been made according to what I've seen in the hundreds and hundreds of pages uh, released. But uh, uh, we have, of course, sold off our share of the Snowy Hydro scheme, and that's where another $2 billion is coming from. The uh, $13 billion in uh, infrastructure projects announced uh, would have seen all sorts of champagne corks uh, popping in the big four uh, accounting consultancy of Ernst & Young and so forth. Uh, alongside uh, Lend-Lease and uh, John Hancock and the big construction uh, complex there. These guys are absolutely cleaning up and I'm sure it won't be long until an investigative journalist is revealing the gold-plated toilet seats that have been built for some of these construction companies. Totally ludicrous how much money it costs to get a a road built these days and uh, I just wonder how many consultants and middlemen are on the uh, the gravy train there uh, picking up their little share of these mega mega projects the billowing victorian land market underpinned most of the spending with uh, uh, seven billion in stamp duties alone uh, there's only three billion in land taxes that came through versus uh, the tax expenditure, which means the exemption of uh, not taxing the family home, which was uh, close to five billion dollars. Uh, this is despite Victorian land values increasing by 189 billion dollars uh, last year. For some reason, they're saying that instead of that tax expenditure being uh, 
being some ninety billion dollars. No, they've they've just booked it at uh, five billion dollars. That's a debate uh, we have with Department of Treasury when we do meet up with them uh, once or twice a year. Uh, the, yeah, the first home buyer stamp duty discount is an absolute policy fraud. I can't believe that continues. When it was first announced by Premier Napthine, it was costing $170 million, uh, giving youngsters this stamp duty discount. Uh, for this coming year, it's expected to rise to $700 million. Now, over this time, Victorian first home buyers, the size of their mortgage, which really is the, uh, the indicator as to whether this discount is working has increased from 2011 of $287,000 to $342,600. So mortgages are still going up. So in reality, what uh, is going on here is that the banks are the big winners from this stamp duty discount, just like they were the big winners from the first homeowner's grant. And, you know, the gravy train continues. Uh, the, the vacancy tax, uh, called the vacant residential property tax, uh, it's too early to really see how much money that is raising or not raising. We would love it to not raise any money, but uh, that seems to have been hidden under the, the absentee owner surcharge. So, uh, yeah, the, the tax on foreign investors is there and raising some $115 million for the year. But uh, what about the domestic investors? They're the ones who are cleaning up. That's where the Game of Mates really is as the public-private partnerships continue onwards. There was no mention of value capture in, in, uh, in the, the government's uh, documentation, no mention of rezoning windfall gains and taxing those. Uh, that's something we're hoping to see more of in the future. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it was... Uh, an election year budget, wasn't it? Uh, did we learn much about uh, the potential for a fairer future? Not really. Regarding public housing, uh, had a look through the numbers there, and they list that the number of households assisted with long-term social housing was uh, 78,000 people, and that number is, uh, gee whiz, only going to increase by 136 households um, in the next two years will stay at that number and then the numbers go down as uh, our public housing uh, is sold off no doubt to uh, insiders who contribute plenty. I was shocked to see in these numbers that there was only that they list the number of public housing dwellings upgraded during the year 2,134 are the number of dwellings that are going to be repaired over the next year out of 80,000 whilst 35,000 people are on the waiting list. Wow. Let's hope that uh, these concerns lead to a new form of public housing. Uh, tonight we're having a discussion call on community land trusts. Uh, it's a form of shared equity, something I've spoken about many times, something I'm trying to implement on my own land up in Drummond. Yeah, it'll be a fascinating discussion. So uh, if you happen to be near North Melbourne, uh, it starts at 6 p.m. tonight. Uh, the first Wednesday of the month, we have one of these discussions. Great to see a couple of uh, Renegades listeners at uh, uh, the recent one we had with Ed Dodson. So uh, hopefully we'll see a few more of you uh, next month. Write that in. First uh, Wednesday of the month, pizza, 
wine and uh, economic disease. Is that what we call it? Uh, White-collar crime investigations. God almighty, can I squeeze this one in? This is a story that uh, shocked me from a few weeks ago. Uh, there's Australia's, one of our next big upstarts, uh, IPO, was announced by Unlocked, U-N-L-O-C-K-D, and they were all set to do their IPO. Google had said, yep, we'll sell your uh, your app in our app shop and uh, good as gold, off you go. And uh, then the word came through that they were going to uh, do an IPO and uh, Google recognized that this could be a threat to their advertising model. So what did they do? They banned them from uh, selling their app on the Google Play website. So uh, from that, uh, Unlocked had to pull their IPO and no doubt are in uh, some pretty heavy legal debates with Google. But uh, there's another example of monopoly power. Uh, should that be legitimate? Uh, Google making the most of this public infrastructure funded out of the U.S. Uh, defense budget uh, way back in the 70s, 80s, and uh, now uh, the gains have been privatized. How can we recognize that technology has this public-private aspect to it where uh, it wouldn't develop without the public support? So uh, uh, there's got to be a way that we, we can protect this form of uh, technology to ensure that uh, we the people get uh, due recompense for some of the risks undertaken by the public budget in encouraging out-of-the-box thinking.